I'm Angie, and I am an alcoholic. I want to thank the committee for inviting me, and Frank and Fran for driving me around, and my higher power for sending such a nice, quiet man like Frank, so indulgent. And sooner or later, I always find uh, people like Fran and Frank that just love to take care of me, and I love to be taken care of. I want to share a little bit with you about who I am and what I'm about. I'll tell you a little bit of what I am today. I have been incredibly blessed in my life. In spite of the first half of it, this last half has been just tremendous. I come to you from Blythe. I'm sure you don't know where Blythe is. It's uh, in uh, the, the border of California and Arizona, and it's uh, just before the world comes to an end and drops into nothing. We're at 125 miles uh, from Palm Springs, so I usually say we're Palm Springs East, and we're 165 miles west of Phoenix. And the reason that I am there, I'm, I'm a transplant from Orange County, the reason that I'm there is because some of us will go to any length to be married. <laughs> I'm one of those. All my life, I've had this deep, deep need to be loved, to be wanted, to be accepted, and to belong somewhere. And today, I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a deep sense of belonging here, and I never belonged anywhere. And I am so grateful that I belong to an organization that our whole essence of our program, of our life today, is to be of maximum service to our higher power and to our fellow men. Huh? There isn't any other goal much more beautiful than that in life, as far as I can, as far as I know. It's my opinion. And I know it is the opinion of a lot of us that love this tremendous program. And you see, the reason that uh, that this is so important to me, to belong to you, is because I never knew what was wrong with me. I just knew that there was something horribly wrong with me. And I was told that as far back as I can remember. I was born into a family that wasn't ready for me then and isn't ready for me now. <laughs> in fact, in my family, when I go visit, and I don't visit very often because I, I don't wish to offend them, uh, very often, and they are still offended by me. Before it was my behavior, and today it's my words. And uh, one of the things that I do is uh, I tell them I'm an alcoholic when they try to push drinks on me. And my mother, her eyes will get real big, and she'll say, Now, you're not an alcoholic. You were always that way. And uh, she, can, she, rem she has a longer memory than I, so she can tell me everything that happened in my life. And when I tell her some of the things that, not, that I'm going to tell you here tonight, not nearly as, as open and candid as I'm going to tell you here tonight, her eyes will get real big and she'll say, well, if you're an alcoholic, you don't get it from my side of the family. <laughs> and she'll take my dad's inventory again. She like, The poor man's been dead almost five years, but she still gets turned on by telling me all about how rotten he was and uh, how rotten I was. 
uh, to her, and um, so I don't, uh, I don't choose to be beat up like that anymore. So I don't go over there very often. I didn't get this sick all by myself. It's gonna take me a long time to to even get even, but I'll tell you, I had some help along the way from both sides of my family. I was born into this family at a time when they kept the, ho- the mothers in the hospital a whole week, and when they came home with this baby, they still didn't have a name for me. And the reason for that is because uh, my daddy wanted to name me after his girlfriend, and my mother's narrow-minded. I already told you how to do it. I had an older sister that was perfect. You know the type I'm talking about. They always told her what to do, and she always did it, and she always did it right, and she screwed it up for me. Because I never knew how to be good. Somehow, I never knew how to be good, and I never remembered to be good until after I was bad. And the only reason I remember that is because my mother would get a shrill sound to her voice, and I knew it was time to split. And I always believed when in doubt, cut out. And they used to whip me every day and twice on Sunday just to keep in practice, I guess. I I think I was a better child. I know I was a better child. I didn't know I was a better child. I just knew there was something terribly wrong with me that didn't seem to be wrong with anybody else. At least I didn't know anybody that was getting it the way I was. And I had a younger brother, and he just was there. Everybody liked everybody but me and my family, it seemed to me. They were divorced when I was seven, and my mother would say to me, like, you're just like your father. And I knew what her opinion was of him. She didn't like him too well. (laughs) So they would send me to the nuns so they could teach me to be a lady. And what the nuns thought a lady was wasn't appealing to me then, and it isn't appealing to me now. (laughs) Because I told you I didn't know how to be good. (laughs) Now... I may not have thought of doing a lot of that stuff they said, thou shalt not. But as soon as they said, thou shalt not, I had an overwhelming desire to do it. And I I couldn't get it out of my mind until I did it. And then I got my whipping, and then I'd be remorseful, and then and they were on when it upward. So somebody dared me, and I raised the nun's skirt up, see what she wore under all them clothes. And so they 86 me from catechism. And uh, that was about as much as uh, we had to do with each other for the longest time. And uh, when I got home, I got the whipping of my life because I was such an embarrassment. I was born and raised in a little barrio. For those of you that don't know what a barrio is, in case you look at me and want to know what I am, I'm a Mexican. I'm, for those of you that have never seen a Mexican, I'm what a real Mexican looks like. <laughs> I used to be a Mexican, now I'm an alcoholic. To become anonymous in this program, huh? Now I was born and raised in a barrio. For those of you that don't know what a barrio is, it's like a ghetto. It's a little Mexican community. And in the days that I was raised there, we didn't let any Anglos in. And they weren't too anxious to come in there either. And we used to join the gangs and beat each other up and call it fun. We're still doing that, except I'm too old to do that stuff. So in those days, uh, in this little barrio, everybody knew what everybody else was doing, and nobody wanted anybody else to know about it. So I'm always a walking bust. I never got away with anything. So when I got home from that uh, catechism, I think uh, uh, my mother knew about it before I got home. 
and I got a whipping of my life. But the next day when I got to school, all the kids thought I was terrific. Man, I was a talk of the school. And I told you I was born with an emptiness in my soul, a yearning, a hunger, a longing to be loved, to be wanted, to be accepted. And as a child, I used to worship my mother. I wanted so desperately to get her love and approval. And it seemed that no matter what I did, I couldn't seem to measure up. So when I got all that attention... It filled up them empty places inside of me, you see. And I always knew from there on out how to get whatever I needed. You see, a trouble came easy to me. And so I always did what, what was in front of me to do. Because I, I knew that there was something terribly wrong with me. I'm one to believe that I always had the pilot lit. All I ever needed was a fuel. And the day came like it did for all of us in here that have the disease of alcoholism. It's when I took my first drink, and I was 12 years old, and I'd gotten into so much trouble over here that I ran off to be with my daddy, because I was like my daddy, right? So I ran off to be with my daddy. He was over in the San Fernando Valley, which was about, is about 40 or 50 miles from Orange County, where I was raised. And he was over in the San Fernando Valley, where he'd taken up light housekeeping with a lady with eight kids, and all he wants is one more, and here comes trouble. I always was trouble. And so he used to take people up north to pick grapes and prunes, and we were fruit pickers. And God made two kinds of Mexicans, as fruit pickers and non-fruit pickers. And, I, and I'm not a fruit picker. But they tried to make a fruit picker out of me, and it didn't take. I'll tell you what took. <laughs> we stayed beyond the season with the Gallo brothers, and they gave my dad a case of sherry wine. And somebody must have said, thou shalt not. <laughs> I had a big water glass of that sherry wine, and when it went down and hit my stomach, everything felt good. I mean, I loved it. It felt good all over. It's just too bad something that good has to be wasted on social drinkers that don't appreciate it. <laughs> You just want to get a little twinge of resentment at them, at them Alamans that, that can drink and work this program anyway? Huh? Well, anything going to make me feel that good. I want more. I mean, there is a button that, one less, well, that my higher power left out of me. The one that says, enough. It never had it. Man, anything going to make me feel that good, I want more. And then it's the next day, just like that, zip, zip. I come to, my hair is stuck to my face where I threw up all over myself. And my, my clothes are torn. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. And I had a sense of shame. I had a sense of being dirty that went all the way through me. And terror came to live with me, you see. Because I knew I had some, done something terrible something horrible and dirty, and I didn't know what it was. And I spent a lifetime looking at people's faces, trying to read what I had done, terrified to know and terrified not to know. Because I didn't know how to handle these feelings. I didn't even know how to label them. I just put a, put a wall around me, you see, and I always had to play the clown because I had to play the clown in order to hide that feeling of being dirty, of being different than anybody else. It was shortly thereafter that I came back to my mother's and she didn't want me home. She and my stepfather did not want me home. I was just a child. I was 13 years old, not quite 14. And I felt old and used up. 
I felt that there I had been painted into a corner and there was no way out. And I always felt like that. I felt so insecure, so useless. And so I drank any time I get a chance because I'm a child, I can't buy it. But I'm also a cute little girl that loves the booze and the boys and the cha-cha-cha. Huh? I was one of the original topless, da- bottomless dancers in Orange County and them parties. And I never got paid for it. I don't even remember it. But you know, the girls were always wanting to tell me the next day what I had done. I really am a very modest person by nature, but in, when I drank, I just didn't give a shit about anything. Excuse my expression, that's just the way it felt. Every so I will try to keep my four-letter words out of my pitch. However, sometimes I have a slip in that direction. Anyway, I used to beat them up and then they didn't tell me because violence is the only way I ever handled anything that was embarrassing. And uh, I don't, also don't know how to work, so I take up burglary. It's still not very feminine, but it, it seemed to be a good idea at the time. I, I really wasn't a bad person. I just was having fun. And um, it was really a surprise to me when the state of California discovered me. And they took me up before this judge, and the judge looked at me and he says, uh, well, young lady, what do you think we have to, we ought to do with you? And I I don't know how to be otherwise, so I just put a smart aleck look on my face. I said, well, you're the judge. You ought to know. I think that was the wrong person to have that kind of an attitude with. Because <laughs> he sent me off to do a little bit of time for the state of California, and I uh, went to the boy, uh, girls' reformatory, not the boys' reformatory, girls' reformatory. <laughs> And uh, I did uh, 13 months. They really only wanted me to do nine, but I don't know how to be good there either. Uh, I'm a walking bus. I always got caught at everything. And so when they let me out at 13 months, I was terrified because, you see, I could just see me be the, the first gray-haired little old lady in the girls' penitentiary. And so when they let me out, I, I just was terrified, and I took my first inventory. I didn't have an education. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a home. I didn't really have anything going for me, so I thought, shoot. I better go out and find me a husband, because God knows I needed somebody to take care of me. And I went out looking for a husband and places that husbands are not to be looked for. <laughs> Unfortunately for both of us, I found one. He was a dreamer like me. He built them castles in the air, and I lived in them. And three months later, we were pregnant, and I was married in that order. And I married a mainline heroin user. And you just don't live happily ever after with one of those. Very exciting, but not very happy. He had an idea of what a good Mexican wife should be, and I had an idea of what a good Mexican husband should be, and never the twain shall meet. I was always liberated. <laughs> and he's got the scars to prove it, and of course I've got him too. And we were quite equipped for um, parenthood, I'll tell you that. And he does. He starts hearing them stories about me, and he doesn't want people talking that way about his wife. So he de- he decides. You notice how he decides when I'm gonna drink. And at that time, uh, well, I felt a little trapped, and I didn't like to do any time. So he introduces me to little white pills with crosses on them. I don't know what they do to me, but I sure knew what. <laughs> I didn't know what they were, but I knew what they did to me. Man, I had one eyeball over there. And one over there, and I'd make baby clothes all night long. <laughs> the same one. Chew on your, in the inside of your mouth and 
scratch and drink coffee and chew gum and talk all at once. Good, I loved it. Not only that, but I learned <coughs> to control alcohol with other chemicals. I know that today, you see, because at the time I didn't know that. I knew that I could drink longer, have fun longer, and I didn't have those god-awful blackouts. You see, and uh, once I started taking uppers, I had to take downers, and I had to balance it out with whatever alcohol seemed to be working at the time. Because uh, something always worked for a little while. And for 12 solid years, I didn't know what it was to have a sober day. Every day, I had a mixture of some kind of chemical along with alcohol inside of me. You see. I didn't know how to be without nothing. Because when I didn't have anything, the world would close in on me. And I felt so different, so unnecessary and unwanted, the same way that I had felt as a child. I still felt that way as I was getting older. By the time I had my baby and they put her in my arms, by that time I knew this man didn't want to be married. As self-centered and self-loathing that I was, I figured out he didn't want to be married to me. He had found out that thing about me that they all found out sooner or later. So when they placed that baby in my arms, my heart sank. I felt like finally, finally, somebody belongs to me. Somebody belongs to me, and nobody can ever take her away from me, because she's my baby. And I promised her I would never mistreat her, beat her, abandon her, and discard her as I had been, because she inspired those feelings within me that nobody ever has before or since. But you see, I'm an alcoholic, and I am a woman alcoholic, and when I drink, I have absolutely no choices and no rights. When I drink, I'm going to do what's in front of me to do. I don't know why I do the things that I do. They just happen to be a good idea at the time, and I can never see beyond the experience of the present. And I took that baby and her sister to places that children should not be taken. <laughs> Way down inside of me, there was always a spark of the woman that I am tonight that walks with dignity and self-respect. But I thought that there was a monster that lived within me. Something was terribly wrong with me. It wasn't wrong with them. I had another one a year later. And my mother told me I was going to be like a rabbit and have one every year. I don't know why I always listened to all the rotten things that she or anybody ever said to me. I just always took them as gospel truth. I never remembered anything kind or loving that was said to me. How could I? When I had so much loathing for myself, I couldn't pick up on anything else than what I thought about my own self. So I thought, geez, if I'm going to have a baby every year, I better go change husbands, because this one wasn't changing much. I tried hard enough to change him, but he wouldn't change. I mean, he would promise me, and he wouldn't keep his promises. So I looked around and picked out another victim, <laughs> and I left him. This other one, not the victim. <laughs> I didn't get married, but when I went out and I fell in love. And when I fall in love, I fall in love all over my body. Every inch of me falls in love forever. I can't remember the names of some of the men I've fallen in love with forever. <laughs> the faces change, it's the feelings that stay the same. Try to find somebody to make it all okay with me because I never was enough. It was never enough just to be me. I knew that if I found him, it'd be all right with me. 
They had songs at that time that supported this kind of insanity. They had a song they used to say, Some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger across a crowded room. Every crowded room, I looked for him. I always found him. It wasn't very long ago I found an old anniversary card from my present husband uh, to his uh, to his first wife, and it said something about "I love you forever," and he was so embarrassed. Yeah, to, that I should find this, he blushed and everything, and I said, honey, I understand. I love you forever, too, or ten years, whichever comes first. <laughs> Nothing is forever, right? I know about love. I'm still in love. They've changed a little bit, though. The guy I fell in love with that type, uh, at that time was, was the same type that I always fell in love with. His name was Danny, but his nickname was CB, and that stood for crazy bastard. I mean, he was exciting. Everything that his name implies. It seems to be something about those men that have a shine in the eyes and everybody is drawn to them. I thought it was charisma and today I know it to be psychosis. <laughs> but it takes one to no one. <laughs> I mean, CB and I had a lot of fun. We used to cruise around the orchard to Orange County after hours because he was my after hours boyfriend on his motorcycle and his motorcycle didn't have any lights on. And you know, them orchards, they've got bumps on them and we just, I never, never was afraid of dying. I just was afraid of living. And many a time I had to come home where there was not enough chemicals inside of me to kill what I had in that cold water shack that when I would walk in and turn the light on, the sink would be black with cockroaches and there was mice and and them filthy floors and maggots on the, on the sinks. And it was a filthy, filthy place that no human being should be subjected to it. But th that was the way that I felt on the inside. And in that shack lived those two little girls with the big eyes that the romance of being a mother had long since died and the responsibility for them weighed heavy upon me. I resented that I had to take care of them. I couldn't even take care of myself. And I was forced to take care of these two little girls. And yet I felt so guilty to voice those thoughts. And they had the big eyes, you see. They used to watch television without any sound. They were terrified that if they made any noise, the monster would come to. And if I would come to, I would start screaming and yelling. Because I couldn't stand that awful feeling of the next day. And once I started screaming and yelling, I would start hitting them. And when I w once I started the violence, it was like something in me would click off. And I would start hitting and hitting and hitting and throwing and, and just go berserk. And, and I wouldn't stop and I couldn't stop until there was blood and bruises and screams and yells and beggings and, and children that were battered, you see. And I, when I would come to, I hated me to see what I had done to those little girls. This is the ugly side of our disease. This is the ugly side of the adventure that I had to go through with my disease. But it's so necessary for me to share this with you because it took years for me to be able to, to tell you anything about it, that they were better, horribly better children and that they always covered up for me. I harmed my children because of my drinking, not because I was a bad person. 
but because I have a disease called alcoholism, and that's where it took me. It took every minute and every inch of that, and I am so sorry, and they know I am so sorry, but this is the things that happen to people like me. I've heard many women come into the program and say that they've taken away their children, and they're very sad. In those days, I used to think, for God's sake, won't somebody please take this little girl and give him a normal home? Because I knew I couldn't. I knew how powerless I was. I just didn't know that I was an alcoholic. For five years, I lived as an animal. This is the time when I became a bar drinker. And everything that happens to bar drinking females, unprotected bar drinking females, happened to me. I know the feeling of degradation and self-loathing that the woman alcoholic goes through when she's a bar drinker and does not have a man protecting her. And then the feelings of being dirty and not being like them, them over there, and wanting so much to feel like them and not knowing how to get there. After a while, CB got tired of me trying to kill him. Because I always wanted to kill all of my men sooner or later. They, they made me angry. And I don't know how to solve anything without violence. So he got another girlfriend. And she wouldn't scare off. So, and I, and in the meantime, um, I started getting letters from my dolphin husband that was someplace in Texas getting the cure. And he wrote back, babes, this time it's going to be different. I have seen the light. The light came on and off for that guy so much it was like a neon sound. <laughs> and so we made the Mexican Geographical. We moved about 30 miles from Mama, 20, 30 miles from Mama. Now I never could stand Mama, but never moved more than 20, 30 miles away. And uh, uh, we bought a little ranch with the chickens. It was just an acre, but it looked it was big for us. It was the chickens and the horses, and and we were going to be farmers and like, like everybody else. We were clean up our act. I even married him in the Catholic Church, and that's going for, to any length for a Catholic, especially since he was a Methodist. I mean, I was desperate. I was going to make this marriage work with this guy no matter what. And we joined the PTA. I mean, how square can you be? I'm a firm believer you can place me in the best of circumstances, and sooner or later I have to create whatever is inside of me, because it's inside of me I couldn't live, you see. And it isn't long before he's making the run to his connection in Orange County and I'm making the run to the wineries. The best thing I can say about Miraloma, it's close to Riverside, that it's in the middle of four wineries. And I always drink wine. You drink wine or tequila. That's what you do when you're a Mexican. White port and lemon juice or tequila. Or after a while you drink whatever's there. My drinking changed at this time. Where before I had been a party girl, a bar drinker, and loved the booze and the boys and the cha-cha-cha, something happened and I no longer wanted to drink with people. I no longer wanted to drink in bars and the dances and the music were loud and the men were obnoxious. I just became a bedroom drinker. Now is the time when I know what the words agony, despair, and utter loneliness are. I know those words. I learned them in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I learned to label everything that I felt in those days. But in those days, I just knew there was a madness inside of me, that nothing was quieted anymore, and I couldn't stand it. But this was the time where I would lay on a fetal position and rock myself 
and cry out and cry out in agony. I would go to church and talk to the priest. I would go wherever. I started going to different religions. I started reading the Bible. I, what I came up with is that there was no answer for me. There was absolutely nothing that would kill the madness anymore. You see, I would drink and drink and drink and my body would be drunk and my mind would be agony. And then I would pass out and come to in my own field. And I felt an embarrassment and I felt like humiliation. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And yet, I didn't come to you. You see, what I, what I made a decision to do is that I was gonna die. I couldn't stand living anymore. I had wanted to die for so long, but this time something clicked in, and I tried to kill myself. And I came to a couple of days later, and I was so enraged to be alive. When I realized this man had been in bed with me both nights, Never once did he consider taking me to a doctor or to a hospital while I was in that coma. I felt like a piece of unwanted meat that nobody wants around anymore. And I just, I couldn't live and I couldn't die and I couldn't drink and I couldn't be sober. And I came to him what has got to be the loneliest day of my life, the loneliest day where I had no place to turn. When I was able to look upon that day with some semblance of objectivity, I realized that my higher power has always had his hand upon my life. Because you see, even upon that day, there was a knock on the door as a lady from the PTA. If there's somebody I didn't want to see, is a lady from the PTA. <laughs> she was one of them. They know them clean people that always smile. That, that they look like they just stepped out of the shower. I hadn't showered and I didn't know how long. Well, it wasn't very long, really, because I had showered before I went to bed to die. In a moment of weakness, I let her in and I tell her my tale of woe. Now you know I have a tale of woe about this SOB and how he done me wrong. I never told anything about, uh, anybody anything about me. I didn't know you could tell. I didn't even know that any place was safe for me to tell anything about me. And she stayed with me and she cleaned me up and she listened to me. And she asked me if I ever heard I Al-Anon. And I'd never heard I Al-Anon. But I got the idea through her, what she was saying to me, that if I went to Al-Anon, he would straighten up. And that was grasping at straws. So she cleaned me up and took me to Al-Anon. I'd like to say in defense of Al-Anon that this lady was uh, was very new in your program. Otherwise, she'd have known where to take me. <laughs> and somehow I didn't fit in in Al-Anon. I felt a little bit like a whorewood in a nunnery. There was absolutely no identification between me and them square bras. None whatsoever. I mean, they were really nice ladies. But I didn't know any nice ladies, and I never knew how to be a nice lady for long. But I remember that they put their armor on me. And I'd like to think that my higher power knew that that would have been the only way that I would have been introduced to their program. Because you see, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know if I'd have been alive long enough to come to you. Because you see, alcohol had always been an answer for me. And when I found pills and other chemicals to control my alcoholism, it had worked for a while. 
But now nothing was working because I hadn't found that combination to work. And so I believe that that would have been the only way that I was able to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, after a while, this lady comes, cleans me up, and takes me. I don't know. I'm not there. They tell me they used to laugh at me. I guess they did. We laugh at each other here, and we talk about each other, and we call it loving concern, and basically that is what it is. But I guess I must have been quite a sight at their meeting. I just sat there and gave him a stark smile. I knew how to get the heat off to smile and pretend you know what they're talking about. <laughs> One day I heard the word release, and I went home and I told him in detail how I was going to release him, and so he used to sleep with his clothes on and a knife under the pillow. <laughs> I knew I couldn't divorce him. I'd married him in the Catholic Church, but I used to contemplate justifiable homicide. So I'd be sitting in the corner, and he'd be a, a, a dozing off, and I'd go take a little peek, and he'd go, oh, that used to turn me on. I loved scaring him. He had always thought he was so bad. He knew who the crazy one was, and he would say unkind things to me. He'd say, baby, I may have a monkey on my back, but you got an orangutan. <laughs> And one day I came home and he was gone. He took everything with him. He wasn't planning on coming back. And he, he and I never lived together for more than three to six months because we couldn't stand each other but any longer than that without trying to kill each other. But he always left something back so he could claim it in a couple of weeks. But this time he took everything. I knew he wasn't coming back. And that, that's the way it had to be. Though that life was unbearable, it was familiar. And fear had been the great compromise of my life. I'd have stared, stayed there, you see, until I'd have killed him or forced him to kill me. Because I had the madness inside of me would be so unbearable sometimes that I had to beat on him because he would always beat on me back. And somehow with that outer violence, that, that terrible, terrible beatings that I took at his hand were necessary to alleviate some of that madness inside of me. It's such a sick way, but that was the only way that I knew how, and I'd have forced him to kill me. But my higher power has had other plans for me. When he left, that Al-Anon lady took me to an AA meeting, and I'm thinking the Al-Anons are trying to get rid of me because they found me out. <laughs> and I walked into the young people's meeting in Pomona. I used to be a young people. <laughs> now I'm a young person in an old container. <laughs> I walked into the young people's meeting in Pomona in August of 1964, and I sat in the back and I listened to the sounds of Alcoholics Anonymous. I listened to that belly laughter, that smile that reaches the soul, that shine in the eyes, and that happy talk, and those are the sounds of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love to go into a room where I don't know anybody and don't have to talk to anybody and just sit back there, close my eyes, and listen to you. You see, there is a dynamic something that happens when you and I come together. And I knew I had never heard it. I, I had never heard what was happening between them, you see. And I've often wondered, what is it and where does it come from? And it came to me one day and I realized that these are just empty rooms. That which happens in here, we bring it with us, every one of us. And it intermingles and becomes a group conscience, the higher power. Call it whatever you want. 
but there is a dynamic something when you and I come together. If you're new like I was, you don't have it. But there was that spark way down inside of me that I hope, newcomer, that it's inside of you that never died. And I wanted it. I hungered for what you had. I just thought it's too bad I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> if, if there's another name for the disease that you and I have, it's called I Ain't Got It. <laughs> now, I knew I was weird. I knew I was different. And I knew I was two steps ahead of the man with a butterfly net. I knew all those things. But you see, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. If I had, I'd have told you. You see, I'd have told you. I was very honest. And I would tell you that I was very honest. If you I asked. But it programmed out the only thing I understood. You see, newcomer, if you be lucky like me, I just sat back there and I let it wash over my soul. But it programmed out the only thing that I understood. I looked around at all those sober, single, good-looking young guys, and I said, man, I'm going to get me one of those. <laughs> they were so marvelous. And I did. It was the sickest one there. He had to be. <laughs> Some identification here, I imagine. I mean, I had radar. I'd have picked him out anywhere. And for ten months, I came around Alcoholics Anonymous for all the wrong reasons. You see, I came for a, for a man. And uh, you said, keep coming back. You put your arm around me and you said, keep coming back. Do you know what that feels like when you're used to people saying, keep on going, weirdo? <laughs> what a disappointment it was to me when I found out you were telling that to everybody. <laughs> I thought it was just me. You made me feel so important. You see, for that little while while I was with you, I felt that warmth that showered upon me from you, you see. And I hungered for it, and I wanted it. Someplace along the line, I think I must have started identifying. I see no other reason for me to stop drinking, but I did. I stopped drinking, and I doubled up on the Mill Towns and Benzedrine, and got weirder, and then this guy wants to get rid of me, and I'm not easy to get rid of because I didn't have a backup. So I moved to Pomona to be closer to the action. And I walked into a room one day, and there's a cute little boy talking. He just got out of YTS. That's the boys' penitentiary. He was 21, and I was 32, going on 92. And he's talking there. He's got big blue eyes and blonde hair. And I have an affinity for blue eyes and blonde hair. <laughs> it is now blue eyes and gray hair. <laughs> but here's this cute young thing talking. <laughs> he says he doesn't have a girlfriend, he doesn't have a surfboard, and he doesn't have a car. And I think to myself, come here, little boy, I'll take care of you. <laughs> and I did. Good, and I educated him on sick broads. I tell you, I had not had a sober day in 12 years, and I didn't know what I was going through called withdrawals. I thought that was sobriety. No wonder I never wanted it. But you see, after that relationship was over, he decided to become a minister. And I'd like to think that somehow, in my small way, I have pushed him over to God.
fantastic thing happened last Saturday night. As I was speaking as I am tonight, and he was sitting there. I'll tell you, you don't know how, how you're going to sound when you get up to the podium and the wreckage of your post is sitting in front of you. <laughs> but you see, he was the first man that had ever been kind to me. He was the first man that had ever been gentle with me. And everywhere that he went, he wanted to take me with him. And he seemed so proud to be seen with me. And I'd have stayed there forever if I could have. Because, you see, Bill Wilson said in his writings that the good is the enemy of the best. And I was willing, always wanting and willing to settle for some little corner of good because I never knew there would be anything else for me. And I hung on to him. I latched on to him with a death grip, you see, because he was so kind to me that had always been abused and misused by the men that I had in my life. He was the one that walked them streets with me when I didn't have any skin on. He was the one that would hold me close when the madness would be unbearable. And the only time I had any relief was when I was with you. But when I left you, I would go home and close that door in that apartment and all that madness would come back. And I clung to this man. I believe today that my higher power sent this gentle young man into my life at a time when I was so vulnerable. But I also believe that you and I do not come together by accident. I believe that we come together by divine appointment and that every relationship has its beginning and its parting. That's not to say that I relish partings even today. The insecurity runs so deep. But I know today that it's with the open hand that love comes and stays not through the grasping, but I didn't know that then. When you go on your way after that appointment has been met, you take a little bit of me with you, and you leave a little bit of you behind. And we're never the same because our lives have touched. All that I am today, I am a little bit of the, all the people that have touched my life, especially the people in Alcoholics Anonymous that have touched my life since I've come to you almost 20 years ago. My, if I stayed sober then, I would have 20 years on the 15th of this month. However, I got well. Does anybody in here understand what that feels like? <laughs> I mean, yes, we read the steps, but that's for you guys. I, I'm a little alcoholic, nothing desperate. I had turned my will and my life over to this young man, and when he got drunk, so did I. I mean, it was very natural. And it was not my worst drunk, it was just my most hopeless one. I felt I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I knew it worked. It worked for you, but good things had always worked for you. My case was different. My case was different. And the reason I'm back here with you is because on a, on a Wednesday night, December the 22nd, 1965, a man named Carson, a man that was known for picking up on newcomer women was the one that brought the message to me. He didn't pick on me. He brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous because my embarrassment and my my humiliation at having failed would have kept my, me out of here. My ego was that, that. And so he brought me in. And the miracle for me is not that I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous, because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds come and don't stay. The miracle for me is that I'm still here. You see, I am one of the desperate ones. The miracle for me is that last December the 22nd, I celebrated my 19th birthday 
And I can hardly, hardly believe. I can hardly believe that lo, that this is going to be. If I stay sober till December the 22nd, that this will be my 20th birthday. It's incredible that I have been walking in the sunlight of the Spirit so many years because my journey began there. And it was the journey of my new life. This is my extra life. This is the life that belongs to my higher power. The last one was mine, and you saw what a mess I made of it. I'd like to tell you that I felt this way then when I came back, but it wasn't. You see, I was so scared this time. Now I thought I was too alcoholic. For those of you that are too alcoholic, I'd like to tell you that we belong here too. Uh, when they would read things, they would say, rarely have we seen a person fail. I don't know about the rest of you, but when they say rarely, I know somebody's not going to make it. And then they say they are such unfortunate, they are not at fault, they seem to have been born that way. Man, I'm screwed, I knew I was born that way. My mother will tell you I was born that way. Who would know better than one's mother? But a little further on down it says, and then there are those that have grave emotional and mental disorders. I am grateful they have that in there. Because my sobriety sounds like some people's drunk along. I kid you not. I can't live in a cold, dark room without any structure, without any guidance, without anything and anybody to depend on, and all of a sudden come here and belong and feel a part of. I still felt strange. I still didn't like women, and I still didn't trust men, and I still felt so alone. But you see, I was desperate. I didn't know if I wanted what you had. I just knew I didn't want what I had. And that's what kept me coming back. And I was so terrified that I couldn't have what you had. But a little further on down it says, many of them do recovery if they have the capacity to be honest. I don't know if I have the capacity to be honest. I really don't know whether I know the difference between right and wrong, especially if I want to do something bad enough. If I want to do something bad enough, I can go home and get on my knees and pray about it and meditate about it and pray about it and meditate about it. And sooner or later, God and I will decide His will for me. I don't check it out with you. Why should I? What do you know? Who knows better than God? Thank God for sponsors that ruin it all for us. I have a lady that ruins all the fun for me. I'm going to give you her name because as long as I'm sober and she's my sponsor, she and I don't have any anonymity. Her name is Mary Reagan, and I know that some of you must know her because she goes a lot, a, a lot of places and talks. And I'll tell you, she tells me things that hurt my feelings. Whenever I call her with with all oh, this tragedy in my life, she'll look at she'll uh, look at me if I'm with her, or she'll laugh and she'll say, "Who's not doing it your way, Angie?" Huh? Or she'll say, Angie, you don't have to sit in your own shit just because it's warm. <laughs> if somebody's having some problem in their life, she'll say, well, call Angie up. She's bound to have something to whine about. <laughs> I'll tell you, there wasn't, it wasn't very long ago, though, that, that there was some, some job that I had had a, in a drunk driving school, and they didn't want me there because I'm so independent and gotten so, so much self-worth, I want to work at my hours. And she looked, she said to me, she said, 
Angie, they don't know class when they see it. So you see, what, I said, what do those nerds know about class? So at least she tells me good stuff when I need it too. But, uh, you know, Mary Reagan has saved my life more than, more than once. But she wasn't my sponsor in the beginning because I didn't know her. A lady had volunteered to be my sponsor and uh, she told me I had to give up that young man or one day he would give me up. And I didn't know how to live without a man. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about somebody to hold me close and make that lonely, horrible something go away at least for a little while. And she said I had to learn to be a mother. And I didn't know how to be a mother any more sober than I did when I was drinking. So I think the most reasonable thing for me is I gave up the sponsor. I knew how to live without her. <laughs> See how I did everything you weren't supposed to do? But I do know that the essence of my life tonight is my sobriety and the yearning of my heart. Underneath all my character defects is to do whatever my higher power has spared me to do. Because I'm one that believes that I have been spared from the, the, the death of you and I dying from the disease of alcoholism thus far. So what happened in the beginning, they knew more than I did it was a step up to be called an alcoholic from some of the stuff I'd been called. In the beginning, they all knew more than I did. And then after a while, I knew more than some of them did. And then I knew more than, than um, one guy. I hated a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm here to confess I ha hated a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there is no feeling much more so wonderful as to hate a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Especially when you walk into a room of a hundred people and you're not happy. I was never happy till I saw him. I'd look around till I saw him. And I went to a meeting every night and he went to a meeting every night. And when I'd look around and, oh, there he was. <laughs> I mean, I hated the way he looked, the way he walked, the way he breathed, the way he drank coffee, everything about, I knew that because I watched him diligently. <laughs> and then I hear things like, Resentments are the number one offender. They're fatal for the alcoholic and they would scare me. So I'd go to some of you that look like you knew what you're talking about. The guys, of course, the women. But the guys were always very understanding. So uh, I went to, uh, to some of them old timers and I asked them, how do you get over resentment? And they say, turn it over easy, does it, this two shall pass one at a time, go home, read the book, keep coming back and don't drink. So, I believe you, so I go home and I do all this neat stuff, and then I come back the next night to test it. And I thought, there he is. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not working for me, so I go to somebody else, because it's one thing for me to know I'm a dummy, it's another thing for both of us to know. I go to somebody else, and again, I ask them with a smile on my face so they didn't think I was a bad person. And I say, how do you get over resentment? And again, they say, turn it over easy, doesn't this too shall pass. One day at a time, go home, eat the book, come back and don't drink. <laughs> After a while, I got the message, you don't know the answer either. <laughs> but I don't know what else to do. I just keep on keeping on keeping on, because that's what we do here. We just follow each other around. The newcomer is the lifeblood of Alcoholics Anonymous. But us old-timers are the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous. And loving you, loving you, has felt exactly the way that I thought that you loving me would feel. But I didn't know that I was always so hungry to be loved that I'd given my heart to anybody that would have taken it. And the day came when a tragedy came into this man's uh, life, 
and he talked about it at a meeting. And he started to cry. After the meeting, everybody went and put their arms around him. And I, I did too. I didn't want you to know that I didn't like this man. And when I put my arm around him and he cried on my shoulder, all that anger and all that resentment melted away as if it had never been. And I, and I found out the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. That we keep on keeping on keeping on doing those things that sound corny and unworkable. And the day comes when it too passes. I used to think those things came to stay. Today I know they came to pass because I have experienced them over and over and over again. There's many times that I need to have patience and tolerance for you. And there's many times when you have patience and tolerance for me. And I don't know where the likes that you and I can go where they love us anyway because they know we're unfinished business. You know I'm unfinished business. When you expect too much from me, if you stick around me long enough, you find out that I'm just like you. If you happen to be newer than me, you, I just happen to have survived more resentments and more problems and more joys to the place that I have been rocketed into the fourth dimension as that book promises me. You see, because I used to be out there looking in, and now I'm in here doing the things that this book tells me to survive. I, I didn't know for the longest time that it was working for me. I married that young man knowing one day he would leave, and I always just wanted somebody to love me and take care of me. I wanted my kid to be a good mother to my kids, and I thought you would give me that. You would show me how to have that. Well, the day came when I had the home and the man that loved me and my children got bigger and they started taking drugs and they started drinking. And I used to get on my knees and say, God, spare my babies. And he didn't spare my babies. And I tried harder and harder and I would not and could not give up my guilt. And what happened to me is that when my children ran off, I had one run off to Ohio and I had one live in a commune and came home with a burn the size of a silver dollar in her chest where people had been putting cigarettes out of and had died inside. She was the one I had held in my arms so many years ago with all those hopes and dreams. And here I was sober five and a half years and I still could not be the mother that I wanted to be. You see, what it was is that they weren't doing it my way, but I didn't have anybody telling me that because I wasn't opening up to anybody. Even though I had a sponsor at the time, I wouldn't tell her those things. I couldn't. I didn't even know they were there to tell. So uh, I had a nervous breakdown. Again, I, I attempted my life. That young man went and took me to the psycho ward, went home, packed his clothes, and left me. And everything that I ever feared came about me. I couldn't stand it. And the reason that I stand before you is because of the women in Alcoholics Anonymous that came and held me up. It was from the men in Alcoholics Anonymous that would hug me and give me that shoulder to cry on, that man part of our, of our program that, give, that gave me that strength that I'm here tonight. You see, it's from the women that I learned to be a woman. There wasn't anything for me like devastating pain to make all them walls that I were so so high and so deep 
come down. And I was able to share the secrets of my heart with you. And you shared the secrets of your heart with me. And I realized we were not so different. We might have had different situations. You might have felt the same in your kitchen as I felt the next morning in some dirty motel or in some dirty bar. We, we felt the same even though the situations were different. We felt unwanted and unnecessary and so dirty. And it is from the men that held me close that I was able to feel like a lady. I went to one of you named Dave and I said, Dave, what's wrong with me that I can't seem to form a one-to-one relationship on an ongoing basis, not even with a beautiful man like Bruce? And he held me close and said, you are a beautiful, warm, loving lady. And one day you will know the reason. So I went home and got on my knees and I said, okay, guys, show me the reason. Thank you so much. And he didn't come back. And so I said, screw them all, let them do what they damn please. I'm tired. I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, that means surrender in the only language I understand. And I made peace with my God. I said, okay, God, I'm never going to be happy again. All you ever want me to do is work with a sick woman drunk, let him puke on me. All right, all right. And so I threw myself completely and absolutely into this program without any reservation. You see, I knew that I would never be happy again and that God just wanted me to work with a sick woman drunk. And your higher, my higher power has a weird sense of humor. Because when I want something so bad, ten Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, it doesn't come. As soon as you say, ah, oh, screw it, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> I don't know why it works that way, it just does for me. When I got to the other side, when I got over the feeling of having been betrayed, I touched the power and I touched the strength within me that I knew that nobody and nothing would ever own me again. Because after all that's said and done, that's only you and me, God, anyway. They never had it to give. I always demanded from them the security that they didn't, for myself, that they didn't have to give. And I, so I threw myself into this program. And that is the reason that I walked tall with dignity and self-respect tonight. Because my kids came back one at a time. I don't even want them back. And when they come back, I said, don't come back. They came back anyway. And they went to work and they put me through school and I became self-supporting through my own contribution. (laughs) And there is a lot of feeling good about myself when I went out to work and bought my own car, my first brand new car, nobody ever drove car with my name on it. But no, no guy bought that for me. You see, I worked and I, and I got, it was, there was a lot of self-respect in no longer being afraid of being alone. I am one of those ladies that has had to learn to live alone, to find out the difference between being alone and being lonely. You see, I haven't been lonely in the longest time when I got to the other side and I knew that nobody had to give the fulfillment that's inside of me that only my higher power and my service to you fulfills inside of me. It was a turning point of my whole life. I often wondered what would happen the next time another crisis comes into my life. The last time I had reached into my sobriety and there was mush. Well, I had an opportunity because you and I have opportunities to know where we're at over and over again. Where to tighten up on my program. I know how to do that. 
and I know when. My sister, who had always been held up as an example to me, was heavy into booze and pills, and she chose to take her life, and it was my destiny to be the one to find her, me that could never stand any kind of pain, physical or emotional. It was my destiny to be the one to find her. And I could not believe what was before my eyes. I just wanted to explode. In those days, there was a calmness that came in my heart that said, God is the only giver and the only taker of life. She chose to go and he let her go home. How many times did I want to die? And I couldn't ever seem to kill this body, you see. I couldn't seem to kill it. And here she chose to go and he let her go. Newcomer, I don't come to save you, I don't come to teach you, I don't come to give you nothing. I come to share my life with you because that's all I have to give you. And it is uh, it is my treasure to share my life with you. I am God's melody of life and he sings his song through me. I would have saved my sister if I could have. She couldn't believe that she was one of us. Because his hand is always light whenever it is heavy. Two weeks after that, I became a grandma. Because my oldest daughter got married and made me a grandma. I was a failure as a mother, but I'm good as a grandma. <laughs> I can hold myself up. I hold myself up to any grandma. I have two little girls and they think grandma and Santa Claus are synonymous. If I happen to be around them during the Christmas season, they'll pull me over to the television and they say, buy me that grandma. Because they know grandma will get it. They're easy. Don't you see? They have shiny little eyes. And they sit next to me. And they say, grandma, you love us, huh, grandma? Because you buy us everything. <laughs> it spills out of the abundance. I'll tell you, I had decided that one day at a time I would not drink. I got to the place where I took an inventory, a good inventory, said so one day at a time I am not going to get married because marriage and happiness are not synonymous. <laughs> and because I am a thief one day at a time, I don't steal. Now, that that was the last thing I, I never... I, when I went and did time, I didn't steal any big stuff. But in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was so grateful that they asked me to talk in conferences. I used to take a little ashtray. What's a little ashtray? As a souvenir. And my sponsor said, it's stealing. For you, it's stealing. And I said, no, it isn't. Everybody takes them a souvenir. And there happened to be some ally there. And he says to her, that's right, everybody takes, they expect you to take the ashtray. And my sponsor looked at me and she said, no, it isn't taken, it's stealing. And she couldn't convince me because, what does she know? God and I have decided it's not stealing. <laughs> she looked me right in the eye and she says, well, Angie, I don't know about you, but my integrity is worth more than an ashtray. Well, she ruined it for me. <laughs> She knew exactly what to say to me. Because, you see, every time I went to pick a souvenir, I would remember those words about her. In I'll be damned if her integrity is going to be worth more than mine. <laughs> so I packed up all their masteries and took them to the meeting. I figured I'll give them back to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where they came from. And so I got comfortable in my job. I started saving for my old age because I'm never going to get married again, right? And I learned to be happy single. And so God heard that and I fell in love with a newcomer. 
Jesus, I'll tell you, that was embarrassing. When your friends tell you, Jesus, Angie, I thought you'd change some. You're, you're. So over 13 years picking on them newcomers. And of course, I had a comeback and I said, well, I checked out all your new old timers and you're so sick. I've got to go get me a well one that's new. I just see this man that I fell in love with has told me, and told me just before I left home, that I am the greatest person that he's ever known, that he loves me, and he has assured me that he will stay married with me five years, and if we stay married till next September the 8th, we will be married five years. I've never been married five years. (laughs) And he's still telling me that he loves me. I mean, I don't have to chase him around the house with knives like I did, like I did the other one. I don't have to chase him around with knives asking him if he loves me. He tells me he loves me from scratch. He's a cowboy and a farmer, and he's got big blue eyes and gray hair. And he wears them cowboy hats and them boots, and I never knew a cowboy farmer before. So I moved to Blythe from Orange County. In a roundup about two years ago, I took my little oldest, my, my oldest granddaughter, and I was dressing to go and talk, and I put on this big white blouse that covers a multitude of thin and, and, uh, I'm, don't try to save me, I'm not ready. And, uh, <laughs> with these white pants and, and I'm going out there, right? And my little granddaughter looks up at me and says, Grandma, you look just like the white angel. Uh, with her shiny little eyes. She was so sincere, says, Grandma, you look just like the white angel. And I looked down at this child, and I saw the magic in her eyes for her grandma. You see, I saw everything that I am through the eyes of that child, you see. She had never had to see her grandma looking like a monster so from having been beat up. She didn't have to see her grandma crawling around in her own vomit. She didn't have to have the beatings from at her grandma's hand that her mother had to have, you see. She just saw her grandma as a white angel. Because of you, you see, there was a magic there between me and that child. And I knew then what you had done with me, what you are doing with me. There is just absolutely no way, no place that it could possibly come from other than that. I told you that I got married to this cowboy and moved to Blythe. And I am so happy in Blythe. I'm a city girl, and I live in the middle of the alfalfa field. And he thinks I'm the greatest cook, so I'm cooking all the time. And I say, look, and we both eat it. He stays skinny, and I get fatter. <laughs> and I says, oh, my God, I can't stand it. He says, you're just a right heavy for me. Oh, all right, all right. Some more tortillas and beans. He loves Mexican food. And he says, God, my house never looks so clean, so I'm scrubbing. I, I mean, I'm doing all this stuff that I thought was, Jesus, hokey. And I'm scrubbing floors. And he says, God, I love the way you iron my shirts. So there, he uses the psychology nobody else. He needs me and wants me. I am important to him. We are both dedicated to making me happy, though. Because he lets me run amok, and I do. 
is the lure that my higher power used to get my sobriety to blight. I'll tell you, I got to blight and they weren't doing it right. <laughs> so I proceeded to tell them how to do that. They were not very impressed. So I ran them off and they started another meeting. And today we have two groups in Blythe and seven meetings. And my husband runs one and I run the other one. <laughs> I have been there almost five years, so I am the treasurer of both groups. <laughs> they trust me too. I don't steal any of their money. They know that I, that I consider it God's money. Because my first sponsor assured me on my first treasurer's job that that was God's money. And that feels like the ashtray. Yeah. It's yucky. And so I am happy as a farmer's wife in Blythe, and I am happy as, as uh, starting out in Alcoholics Anonymous in a little town that said isolated. They're not one bit impressed with me. They don't think it's any big deal. They don't know who I am, and they could care less. They just uh, clap whenever I pass at their meetings. <laughs> My higher power knows how to balance out the ego, doesn't he? They read many things when I came here, not the least of which in the promises were that we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. And I'll tell you, I don't know that just because I read it because you told me, but because I have experienced it and I experience it daily. It was through my sister's death that I learned to live one day at a time. It is from kissing a hundred toads that I learned to appreciate my prince. And I know that everything is temporary and I can enjoy the now. If you happen to be a woman like I was that lived in a bedroom and cried out and cried out in agony, there is no road that leads from there to here. I could never have unraveled it on my own. But I am here because he has touched me. May he do the same for you. Thank you so much for having me here.